Hello, everyone. Welcome to the new episode of Sports Across the Pond. This time we're going to speak about uh, women's sports and with not just the usual me, Carlo De Marquis, Nick Cicero. We have a very welcome speaker like uh, and guest speaker, Nick Mitchell from Sports Pro. Hello, everyone. Hi. Hey, Paolo, and hi, everyone. Good to, good to be here with you. Hello. So it's it's great to have you as a as a guest speaker here with us, Nick. Today, um, the the reason why we really wanted to have you, well, it could be, it could be to any content, to be honest, because uh, of course you are very very much an expert in anything sports and media. But particularly, uh, we wanted to have you here today because the the whole topic is about women's sports uh, in seeing in two different versions. One, the business of women's sports. So. What, what do you see there and uh, what are the trends and uh, why it really matters right now because it's getting the momentum. And the second part of the topic that we really would like to understand more about is about uh, women in business. You launched a sports pro like uh, the New Era initiative, which is actually super successful. Uh, so we definitely would like to know a bit more about, about that. But um, let's get it started and let's talk about business. What, what do you see from, from your position? Because you, you, you've been like covering everything in business and lots about women's business, uh, especially lately. What is your view? What is going on? Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, thank you again for having me. And I think with women's sports, it's, it's in a really interesting time. Obviously, the numbers and the growth that we've seen in consumption and investment from whether it be media rights uh, or sponsors is is out of this world if you think about where we were a few years ago. But let's be honest, we were starting at a pretty low baseline. So it's really exciting to see that we're starting to get a lot of momentum, um, a lot of news coverage, both from you know, trade bodies and publishers like us on deals that are being done, um, but also by mainstream media covering more about the business side of um, sports and the women's sports game as well. Um, what I would say on the other side of that is there's still a long way to go even to the general coverage side. You know, I think the numbers are less than 10% of normal media is actually covering women's sports still. Um, but big event moments is really what is really moving the, the needle in terms of uh, consumption and interest around the women's sports. Um, you know, the Women's World Cup coming up in, in a few months' time will be really, sorry, a few weeks' time, I should say. It'll be really exciting to see how much impact that has had on a global scale for for consumption and interest around women's football because there's been a lot of pro progress with what's happening on the Champions League, um, what's happened in the Euros. Uh, given the challenges with the time zones in Australia and New Zealand, I'm hoping that that won't be a barrier for seeing a further kick in interest uh, across the, the women's football and women's sports uh, uh, completely. And why do you think it is now? So, because I, it's clearly like it's getting momentum, like in the last 12 to 24 months, basically, like everything has happened. So I never heard myself about, like, it's not never heard, but it wasn't in the news so much. It is not, now it is a thing, like for mainstream. So before it was very, very, very much, if you're into it, you know it, otherwise you would never even hear about it. What's, ha what's happening and why? I mean, my, my view on it is, uh, well, you can speculate as to the reasons why we're here uh, and why decisions were being made and not being made. I do think fundamentally there's just more data to support the concept and the reason that, hey, there is a lot of interest in women's sports and women's athletes and and all those areas that historically we didn't really have that 
ease ease of visibility. Uh, you think about YouTube and social media and the role that can play. There's now tangible data that sports properties and, and investors can look at and go, oh, wow, there's actually a huge engaged audience here. What are we doing to, to engage with that, that, that group? Um, and I also think, you know, in markets like, say, the UK, they've done, they, one of the things that may have helped push the, uh, the interest in driving women's sports further is the need from, uh, from a physical perspective and a leisure perspective is to drive more participation in sports. And one of the areas that was underserved was women's sports generally. And so to use uh, women's sports as a catalyst to profession, professionalize it can use it as a catalyst to potentially drive more interest in participation at grassroots and, and get people more active, I think was possibly one of the, the factors that may, be, may have been helping at least to see more support coming from a governmental level. Um, but I think data is really a, a driving part of it. There's some, some studies that I've seen recently, um, which are actually going to look to do a, a bit of a deep dive podcast on this, uh, on the Streamtime podcast, which I'm, I'm hosting every week, um, but with Women's Sports Trust, which is a UK-based study. Um, but they saw that uh, around 6 million, uh, there's 6 million committed fans uh, to at least one women's sports uh, property in the UK versus 16 for men. Um of those fans, just 3% of those women's fans are fans of only women's sports. So it just shows that this general interest in, in sports. It doesn't have to be male or female. There's just interesting, good competition. And the more visibility you get, the more people will be um, showing interest in, and engaging with that content. Um, so look, I think the data the data is backing everything up. And um, I think we're only at the starting point of, of more and more investment coming into this space. Yeah. You know, Nick, what I think is really interesting that you just mentioned, and I'm, you know, I love I'm a social media guy, so I love that you brought up social media. But it seems to me like that factor of the world that we live in today, the ability for people to kind of gather in communities that are really, really relevant to their passions, they're able to, to, to gather and communicate with one another in a lot easier way. So before, you know, you didn't really have as much conversation around women's sports because mainstream media, mass media kind of dominated the conversation with the couple stick and ball sports or a few Olympics coverages here and there that really dominated the bulk of sports. But to your point about the data, I think that's, that's such an interesting point is where else would we have gone and got the data pre-social media, right? What would we have done? We would have done, you know, extensive surveys and, and research studies where we'd interview people. We would look at, you know, certain types of empirical data, or you might have to run a years long study. Whereas now in just a matter of years, and I know obviously that there's been a lot of groundwork pre-social media to, to do this, but for example, in the past few years, you get a few influential figures together, like something with the uh, the Women's Soccer League here in the U.S., for example, with a lot of really influential people behind it. And they start creating a lot of social conversation around it. That also gives you this new pool of data to pull from a lot faster and allows us to, to enact change a lot faster. Um, you know, I'm just, just curious to, to, to hear what you think about that or just in general. I know that, you know, being in sports pro, you're kind of seeing how different pockets of different types of women's sports evolve online. Yeah, I mean the coverage, the coverage, and the data is is backing all that up pretty well. I was actually just thinking as you're talking about the data side of things. I think one thing that's happened from reflection um, across more the wider broad broadcasting space is that we actually start to see, particularly in the UK and other markets, that 
um, some of the broadcasters became more selective on what sports they were actually investing in because they they would double down on, well, if we just invest in, so for example, Sky Sports in the UK is an example of this, right? Where they went, okay, we, they went from a, a generalist, we're going to have a bunch of different channels covering sports to we're going to create de dedicated single sports channels. The knock-on effect of that is they started putting more money into Formula One and cricket and boxing and so forth but they reduced their investment in tier two and tier three sports and just focus on the ones that move the needle and drive subscription growth. And I think now we're just getting to a tipping point now where the, the interest levels are at least in terms of, uh, you know, having different platforms with more content, you know, think about fast channels, think about what role YouTube plays is just providing more opportunity for those tier two, tier three sports to finally get like another chance at mass exposure again. Because let's face it, 10, 20 years ago, if you didn't have the broadcast partnership in place, you, you were dead in the water in terms of reaching coverage. Now we've sort of gone through like almost like a dip and we're coming back out of it again where there's now more opportunity than ever for tier two, tier three sports to at least to find their, their, their own place and destination to build up a Syrian's audience base. And, and, you, and social media is such an important part of that mix. Obviously, social media, in my view, plays in many ways the role of free-to-air TV in terms of mass reach, mass awareness, and discoverability. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, I, and I'm kind of leading you into to maybe talking a little bit more, but I know that DAZN, for example, somebody that, that you know I've worked with quite a bit in my past at, at Conviva and Del Mondo, um, they have been somebody who's taken that and taken that to the next level in terms of you know broadcasting things like the women's uh, UEFA championships that are breaking records on YouTube, right? Yeah, completely. I mean, some of the, the numbers that they've they've recently produced a report and some, shared some figures. Um, I mean, it's important for people that, that don't quite understand the nuance of that relationship. It's sort of like a tri-point venture between DAZN, the Champions League, and YouTube. Um, but the, the 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 numbers show us, I think they have 50% increase in, in audiences from year on year. Uh, they've seen 57% increase in fan interest um, thanks to the availability of it being on YouTube. Um, but what's also really interesting is that the commercially, um, the organization is seeing 54% increase, um, uh, sorry, a 54% more positive impact on revenue um, to the clubs and teams involved because of the exposure. Um, so they're getting more eyeballs and they're getting more commercial opportunities as a result of that, that exposure. The challenge for that deal is going to be when DAZN put two thirds of the live games next season behind a paywall. Yeah, what's going to happen there? I get the sense. No one said this to me, but I get the sense. Dizone are a little bit nervous about how that's going to go and whether it's actually going to start paying dividends. Um, and I think everyone else is a bit nervous about the knock-on effect of that lack of reach that they've had. But it's a great test test bed or a case study for us to to see what impact um, this sort of this sort of approach, this sort of journey, um, can have on, um, on on the women's women's football game. One thing that I uh, want to say. Sorry. So one thing I wanted to say is an, an aspect of what you said about social clearly broadcast ethno data. And uh, I've heard people commenting on how they decide what to put in their fast channel. They use their YouTube audience to understand it. It is quite funny. On the other end, you know that in music, um, that could be a sad thing. If you're not popular on TikTok, it won't produce a record for you. So clearly, 
uh, different media try to use data from wherever they're they're available. Right. That's the point that I think Nick and Nick and Nick. Sorry, I didn't notice that. <laughs> we were making. On the other end, I, I was intrigued by what uh, Nick Neeson said on on subscribers. You know, you had uh, you focus on verticals because you wanted to have subscriber. But then maybe it's sort of where things now are evolving. It may be because in, in the early days of the subscriber idea, you had to acquire and convert. As mm. things progress, everybody starts understanding that retention is the real uh, success factor. And retention may mean not only having one or two sports that are super, oh, I, I would subscribe if they have Formula One. Yeah, but Formula One is once a week, maybe not all, not even every week. So <laughs> I need something else. And, and the maybe uh, the approach is different because now the quality and, and, and that's where you need the data of what you put on top in the bundle of the one or two or three that change the, the conversion is what may, may or may not retain people to stay a subscriber, which is clearly, uh, as we go more to profitability, the real number one problem, retaining people, right, I guess. Um, I think it's funny you mentioned fast. Oh, go ahead, Paula. Yeah, so just I just wanted to add one one data because we were talking about the the Dazon uh, Women's Champions League. Just to give a bit of prospect as well in terms of how big that was. Like I, I think it was very like from a growth perspective. All you said, Nick, was very interesting because it's like the numbers are double digit going to triple digit. So it's like uh, which in it's not surprising because, of course, you're starting from a lower, um, a lower point, but still, it's it's massive. the The key thing that I, I was looking at in terms of the numbers there was like that. Basically, their channel in one year, one year and a half. That's very young. So they did 100 million views in total. And if you think about Europe as a population, which is 600, seven, uh, it's 750 million roughly. So they did basic every person in in Europe one out of seven like basically watched at least a video of the Women's Champion League, just to give a, like a comparison. It's like for something that was not online before, like first time ever, that's, uh, that's the, the, the first kind of approach to that, which is basically getting that reach is definitely massive. Of course, then the paywall might, uh, might be a challenge uh, because you need to invest for a longer period of time to actually get people to get used to it. But uh, interest is there because it could have been very different. It could have been like one out of 30 people actually watching it, to be fair. And uh, I think it's surprising one out of seven if you're considering the whole population, So, which is not, of course, it's not the, the right demographic, but to give our perspective, really. Yeah, absolutely. I would just add on that, uh, Paola, that I think one of the big things that this is, this is a reminder of is that there is incredible audience numbers to be produced not just in women's sports but indeed just in sports generally when you open the floodgates and make sure your platform your content is in the right places the challenge has always been the audiences can be there if we put them put it in the right places how do you turn that into conversion how do you monetize that what will be interesting to see is youtube has obviously invested a lot of time into creating um and uh, maturing their monetization approach around e-commerce around pay-per-view um the new primetime proposition and all those extra layers of revenue generation outside of the traditional just subscription um, offering, which we all know in terms of, you know, in the broadcast space is so hindering to audience growth. Um, it'd be great to see that not only is this able to grow such a scaled audience on YouTube, but indeed they can just turn that directly into 
serious revenue for both everyone involved? Because I, I, what, well, what's the magic? What's the tipping point? Like, what numbers do they have to do on YouTube to be able to move the needle enough to generate income? Because it's, it's pretty impressive numbers on, on the scale, right? Yeah, absolutely. One thing that um, I, I've spent the last thirty-five years in different sports, not only in few sports. And something I noticed through the years, before this uh, you know, moment where clearly we all talked about it, in certain sports, and I think it may be a difference, uh, you mentioned football, soccer, etc. Clearly these are uh, events that happen completely separate. It's, it's like almost a different game for people, blah, blah, blah. When you're in athletics, at the Olympics, uh, direct experience for me, uh, ski, like ski races, ski World Cup, they're together. I never, it was, I mean, I learned this from NBC, the broadcaster. It's about a, a flag, a hero, and a story. Honestly, we would be all mad because now the, the, ski, the, the women's ski team is super strong. Or there is an athlete, Fiona May. Or, so honestly, I think this separation between men and women, I understand. So I understand. I don't condone, but I understand when the sport is completely separate. But very often when the sports are together, I don't see, and tennis is another example with big discussions. I don't touch tennis, but the other sports, it's about the flag they hear and the story. I don't care if it's a man or a woman. And I, I enjoy sports in the same way. On the other hand, you look who's ruling the sports without going to polemic. It's all men. And that, I think, is a problem in the end. It's definitely a problem. Well, I guess that's what Nick is doing with the Sports Pro New Era. He's trying to change that, at least to balance that somehow. Well, we're definitely, we're definitely trying, that's for sure. I mean, one of the things that we've seen, uh, you know, looking at the data ourselves, not only of uh, the audiences that exist, but also the, the job roles exist, that yeah, the, the industry is so heavily male-dominated in terms of percentages um, that, yeah, it's it's pretty hard to, you know, we don't, we have a real lack of, of women in senior positions, although that is changing. Um, and yeah, if you look around the political political world, that you often see that the, the, the countries that are run by women are often a little bit less crazy than some of the ones that are run by men. But um, hopefully that's not a sign, a symptom of what you would see in sports uh, moving forward. I would like just to, to bring up one more thing when we were talking about uh, business and, and data. So I was trying to look at, at numbers of valuations of, um, especially I'm following a lot about um, Alexis O'Hay and, and what he's doing with the Los Angeles um, Football Club and uh, sorry, uh, Angel City Football Club. And I was looking at the how ambitious that is. Um, of course, it might not be all of the clubs whatsoever, but basically they started like very recently. And last year they were already valued $100 million and they're aiming to get to $1 billion in five years. Now, of course, like let's put in perspective, it might, it might not be $1 billion in five years, but still we are going to basically from zero to a billion uh, as an objective. So just writing it down, it means it's, it's ambitious, but achievable. If not in five years, it might be done in 10, but still it's something achievable. So going from uh, nowhere to, to, to 1 billion, uh, I think that growth rate is, is very hard to think about in, in, in other sports, in other countries. Like, so I think having that opportunity for brands uh, as well to 
jump in when the the growth is so getting as well like a good value uh, for for and good ROI for the growth uh, and also for business owners and uh, whoever is investing in the in the area. I mean, we're talking about uh, massive growth in terms of business. Uh, I don't know if you have a view on that, but I was like looking at the numbers. It's like, is that the right number of zeros? It's like, wow. <laughs> well, well, with Angel City FC, I mean, I'm not as close to the US stuff as perhaps maybe Nick might be, but what, what I do know is that I think the last reported numbers they had around their sponsorship turnover was about 40 million um, for the year. Um, so let's assume they might be turning over you know, on double that um, across everything else they do. It wouldn't be anymore. Um, I mean, it's a pretty lofty, lofty valuation number, but the, the valuation models for American sports properties and sports properties in general in the world are pretty, pretty crazy. Um, I mean, what's exciting, Angel City, I do hesitate to look at that example as a, like a benchmark for the rest of the industry just because Angel City's framework of the types of people they have involved. You know, Carlo made a point before about storytelling and the personalities and so forth, and that's what sports and the popularity of sports built on. Well, Angel City have a lot of that in terms of the leadership and the whole story from, like, from launch and the types of famous people they've had involved from day one, which gives them an incredible platform to bring on partners, drive extra revenue opportunities, uh, broadcasts and media coverage that you would just never get anywhere else. I mean, you could think about what's happened with Wrexham, I suppose, in, in the UK. Well, yeah, but I mean, of... it, took, it took Ryan Reynolds to get Wrexham a Hulu deal, same thing. It took, uh, you know, Serena Williams and Alexis Ohanian to get an HBO deal, for example, with yeah. Angel FC. So sometimes, to your point, it's exactly about that, right? If, if Wrexham had just got bought by a random billionaire, it might have been a totally different story. Completely, completely. So that's why I'm always a bit hesitant with those stories because I think they're exceptions rather than the rules, but they do show that there is potential there. Whether they can keep riding that wave of growth, I think a lot of it will will depend on how you know the NWSL's coverage um, develops and evolves and they can get some substantial deals there. But they, they need something to happen more, more widely to keep the momentum up. But they've got some great people and they're well run. They're an impressive organization, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I would just I would just add and and uh, no, I'm cognizant that we're three men and a woman on a on a show talking about women's sports. So you know, feel free anybody to shut me down. But I do think that when when I look at other types of of sports out there, I think that you look at uh, maybe football and tennis and golf as as some of the most dominant women's sports out there. And I certainly think tennis and golf have uh, have quite a bit of of mainstream at attention. Somebody might prove me otherwise obviously football is one of those global and then you have the olympic sports but then even in the world of men's sports there's lots of sports that want to be considered the biggest sports in the world that are never going to get there right you i, I look at and and this is no offense to them like a lacrosse for example it's a very self-sustaining sport right like they've come out and you know they've had a multitude of different types of pro leagues although i think that you know paul rabel is doing a pretty good job with the latest version of that um, they've expanded to kind of a global game and are really looking to do that. But is is you know is you know men's or women's lacrosse going to going to be the top billing on an ESPN anytime soon? Most likely not. Uh, so I think that there's this because of the the world of choice that we have today, and it's been brought up with the streaming relationships with the social video platforms like YouTube. Last week we talked a lot about the fast channels, right? We have 
we have uh, the the demand for content. I would say on on a lot of these places, like we have a lot of demand for content, but you need to have a demand for unique and differentiated content. And so I think that there's a huge opportunity um, for women's sports. You know, not maybe not looking at the whole industry as a whole, but for different pockets of that to really fill that niche model as well to be able to be self sustaining, to be able to build models that differentiate. And that's the one thing that we do know about the streaming world today is that everybody wants to differentiate themselves, right? So, can YouTube and DAZN and UEFA align together with women's football to really blow that up? I, you know, or could there be, you know, somebody like Peacock and what they've done with like a WWE where they've able to bring that that audience over? So I think that that what we're going to start to see and, and hopefully it can be, uh, you know, monetizable in a great way for everybody involved. But I think there's a really big opportunity with the branded content, with new streaming platforms and with some level of subscription slash free for different types of sport um, to, to really expand upon all of that too. I don't know. Nick, I, I, the last thing, I, I don't know if you, I, like I said before, I know I mentioned soccer, football, and uh, you know, golf and tennis. Um, what are some of the other uh, sports that you in particular have seen attracting a lot of attention just in the streaming space, maybe mainstream or niche? I know that you're involved with volleyball. Is volleyball pretty popular? Are there there's some other things? We we talk so much about golf and tennis and soccer. I was figured there's, there's there's probably people out there that that are interested in other types of women's sports. Yeah, there's a lot of interest in. I think there's a lot of broad interest across a number of different sports in the same way across men's sports. I think, but in terms of generating the, the interest on the, on the the sort of professional and commercial side, um, I'd say they're the main ones. I think very interested to see what happens with the WNBA and basketball generally. It feels like that is in such a good place to really take a big step. I know, um, you know, the coverage has been growing in, in the US. Um, the coverage of college basketball has been growing in the US exponentially ESPN's already come out and said they, they struggle they're going to struggle to hold on to a lot of their media rights uh, because they have such a sort of non, not a monopoly but a bit of a monopoly on the women's uh, various women's yeah. sports they have on the platform and basketball's probably the core product there um, outside of that there's some interesting models I'm watching so uh, volleyball is as you mentioned sort of really focused on um, trying to be very balanced with the amount of coverage and content they produce for both the women's and men's uh, games both indoor and in beach um i, I think tennis is is one of the ones that's interesting you know out with the with serena williams sort of stepping away and so forth and will there be some shining personalities to come through and heroes to really step up um there's been a lot of great play, um, women's players that have sort of popped up but uh, that's a bit i'm interested also with the investment from cvc coming in uh i'm interested to see what if that can really spur some action but I mean, still, football is really the the main thing I'll be watching, and also for next year, I'm going to be watching what Paris can bring. You know, what's the Olympics going to bring to the table? Now feels like a great time for some new heroes to be born um, and to be brought up, uh, and that's a great platform for for perhaps some new women's um, sports, uh, new women's athletes, and potentially even sports to le leverage that exposure that Paris might give them. <laughs> All right, so I think we still have very few minutes, but I just want to get a bit more of your insights from what you learned from launching the New Year uh, initiative. Uh, I think I'd, uh, I want to make sure that we go through it because uh, I was surprised 
a happily surprised when I saw like full house, no place to sit when at, at the event there in um, in London for the Sports Pro Live. And uh, actually, I couldn't get into the second event. It was too many people, and I was like, oh my god, <laughs> there is something going on here. So, which I was I was very happy to see. So, what's your learning there? What do you see there? Yeah, sure. I mean, we we launched the New Era program as an initiative. We spurred a bit of out of a bit of frustration, I think, for us. Like what we were really seeing is, you know, we run events, we do media content, and we were really struggling to really get quite a breadth of uh, female voices uh, on on and in, in our content, and also just the lack of diversity uh, at our events. So we thought, let's try and see if we can just do something that might might help a little bit in that space and maybe uh, open up some opportunities for some other f um, female leaders in the industry or female executives. Um, so we launched the New Era program, which the concept was to build a class of, of I think it was a 13 or 14 um, women who would have the opportunity to get mentorship from real senior leaders in the industry. We're talking, um, let's see, like Alexandra Willis, the director of digital of Premier League. We're talking jo Johanna Ferries, the SVP of Activision Blizzard, commercial director of ATP Media, um, CFO, COO of uh, English Rugby Union, someone, um, Charlotte Burr from FIFA, uh, and about a, a bunch of others that are real quite senior C-level executives, and they would become effectively mentors um, for this class. But what we didn't expect was the popularity and interest. We had something like, I think it was like 270 women applied to be in the program. Um, and we were expecting not even a, a fraction of that number. And we, we only marketed it through very much a very simple marketing campaign through our own channels. Um, but so we tailored that group and we looked at all these people that engaged with them on the first wave and went, wow, we need to do something more. So we've launched podcast series, articles, uh, webinars, um, and are producing a whole stream of content to talk to this audience set itself. So it's not about create, creating awareness uh, for of women in the sports industry, but it's actually to help create a community of women in the sports industry and also tell their stories and and heighten awareness of uh, the, the role models that exist in this industry and space that are the female leaders. Uh, and fast forward to nine, 12 months as this has been growing, we've got something like 33 different countries represented in our community. Um, the people who've signed up to be part of the community and the, uh, the different content initiatives we do is approaching a thousand people. Um, we had 200 attend our event in, in Sports Pro Live, uh, sorry, 200 apply to attend. Um, we had to limit the numbers because we couldn't fit them all in the room, as you pointed out before. Um, and we're really excited. Like there's such an incredible interest. That, and if you talk to the people that are involved, Oh, it's so refreshing to hear that actually that A, they they love it. They love being involved with it. They love being the ability to engage with their peers and people in a similar boat and a similar experience. Um, and there's huge support developing around it, um, both also from men within the industry who really want to empower and support um, women in the industry because there's still quite a dearth of women in this, this sector. Um, now, sports has still a huge problem top down and bottom up. Right, there's not enough women who are interested in getting into the sports industry. Like, there's a lack of supply because sports is not a particularly attractive place for some women to come into uh, on first instance. And there's still a lack of leadership in those top roles that we need to see more, have more role models. But we're hoping to see that we are seeing that that is changing, uh, and we want to just really foster 
that continues to progress and we start seeing more women interested in the industry and we're taking roles in the industry at all levels, not just at the top or at the bottom. Uh, so we're hoping to play a little bit of a role in that because we think it's a really important part of helping this industry pro progress. Well, that's that's great to see, uh, to be honest. Uh, I was sur happily surprised and uh, I'm really uh, curious to see what's going to be in a year from now uh, because as you see, it's growing like massively and that's nice to see. Just wanted to add one thing about, uh, I think Nick was saying, uh, Nick Cesar was saying, we're three men and one woman. So very delicate, a bit sophisticated argument, but yes, it, it may be bad for representation in this case, but the fact that men are involved in progressing, women in the sport business, women in sport is crucial, not only because at least they're 50%, even if we know in some cases 80% and in the top 80% position, but it's crucial. Uh, and more and more, I see this kind of, you know, diversity chat where someone on the underrepresented group says, yeah, but you created the problem, solved the problem. I, I have a, a friend that is an exec in a, a top broadcaster. And she says, I'm always invited to this panel. Just do something. Don't stop inviting me to panel. Let me work. Yeah. But do something. Take action. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then, I mean, I've had the pleasure of sitting with a lot of the the fine women that, that Nick mentioned, like Alex Willis and others on panels. And, you know, honestly, all of my, my best clients and employees and people that I've worked with my, my life in the social video world have been really smart women. So yeah, obviously looks are one thing, but I know that the, everybody here on this call is always driving to figure out ways that we can achieve equality and representation. So, um, you know, it's kind of hard to not mention it though, tongue in cheek. Well, we have as well, like Alfonso saying that it's a great initiative. So we have <laughs> like Thanks, uh, support uh, from Mexico. Uh, so I think the time is running up. So thank you very much, Nick, for being with us. Thanks, uh, Nick Cicero as well, and Carlo de Marquez. And ciao, ciao um, from London. I like three from London and one from the US. Now it's uh, we're forgetting about mainland Europe right, right now. <laughs> so um, thank you again and uh, see you in 15 days uh, for the next episode of Sports Across the Pond. Have a great day. Thanks, everyone. Ciao, ciao. Bye, everyone.